This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. You may have heard or you may have noticed from somebody that the U.S. government likes to gather up information and in order to try to bring themselves more in line with the international community, they are soon to require the gathering of information about what they call the beneficial owner um, of entities and to under what is called the corporate trans. The Corporate Transparency Act, CTA. Boy, I'm really butchering this. Um, and here to talk to me about this and to correct how I have introduced all of this is Gary Fletcher. Gary, thanks for joining me. Hey, Brett. I'm kind of used to um, being uninvited from places that I've been invited before. So yeah. to be, uh, <laughs> so to be yeah. invited back is like Quite a novelty. Not, yeah. huh? <laughs> I'm not used to that. And, and yeah. I and, and I've in listening to the, your last two podcasts, I got to say, I feel a little bit bland in lacking of Southern accent. So we have had a run of Southerners. That's true. So I, I'm i sorry for all the listeners who are hoping to hear that twang and to <laughs> to get their fill. But no, nope, not today. I could give it a try, but the, uh, the listener volume might decline rapidly. There may, there may be some offended <laughs> listeners. Probably better you not try. Well, um, this Corporate Transparency Act, or CTA, is something that probably a lot of people have heard about. Uh, you know, you and I were just talking before we hit record here about the fact that this thing passed over a veto. Actually, it was, it was Trump's veto, I think. Um, so you imagine Trump vetoed a bill and then the Republicans in Congress passed this over his veto. That's pretty, pretty astounding, frankly. Um, but that's what happened. And as we were chatting about, this is actually... Um... Um, although, you know, you started with uh, many may have heard of this. Part of the reason this has kind of become my pet project this year is that I'm finding that more and more people who need to hear about it have not heard about it. And um, the the act itself was actually, um, I believe, the fourth or fifth attempt at passing something to uh, to get through what we're going to talk about. So it's been a long time coming. It has. And you're right to correct the record there that it, it is true. Many have not heard about it that really need to hear about it. So why don't you set the stage here then in at least in broad strokes, explain what it is and and then we can start digging into some of these details. Sure. So they so the act itself is called the Corporate Transparency Act, which um the name in and of itself is a little bit of a misnomer. So people may be inclined to skip over it if they see it come across their whatever screen, uh, in that it, it is not simply applicable to corporations, but rather a corporation, a limited liability company, or any quote-unquote similar entity that is formed by filing a document with the Secretary of State, similar government agency, or an Indian tribe. So it, it's a pretty broad in scope. And part of the reason that many have not um, become aware of it is that it was passed in January of 2021, so it's been around a little while already, but it was passed as a provision tucked away rather deep in a National Defense Act, 
which um, you may say, why would that be? Well, the the um, the intended uh, target of this really is money laundering and funding of terrorism. So it was in a defense act, but because it was in a defense act, then then many of us that are out there um, monitoring new bills and laws in in our world, uh, that doesn't necessarily cross our cross our desk or, or raise our eyebrow right away. No, it does not. It doesn't jump off the screen as, oh, you need to pay attention to this. Since so you I, have never paid attention to those bills ever in your history. Exactly. So and, and my my initial exposure to this was in, I guess, March of 2021 um, at, at an ACTEC conference, virtual, of course, given the date. Um, and they were giving a presentation on the Corporate Transparency Act. And my initial reaction was, well, what is that? And here we are about a year and a half later, and every time I talk about it, I'm seeing the same reaction from colleagues and peers, et cetera. What is that? Yeah. So, and that, you know, so the, 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 the main gist of this is that it's a new reporting requirement, so it's not paper reduction, although it probably will be electronic reporting, we'll see, um, that requires you to disclose certain information about certain companies and certain people. And the, the key terms that you, you take out of the Corporate Transparency Act are a reporting company, a beneficial owner of a reporting company, or a company applicant. So as we go through those, we'll find that this is pretty, pretty broad reaching. And in fact, in a looking backwards fashion at this point, which there is no limit to, so there's no you know, beginning date that, well, if it happened before this date, we're not going to worry about it. So the the proposed regulations that we have in place so far estimate that we're looking at 26 million reporting companies that will have a reporting responsibility. So this is important to, again, in our world, um, not only to the professionals listening, but the more importantly, the clients, because this reporting requirement that we're going to talk about falls on the reporting company, not the lawyer, not the beneficial owner, not the company applicant, all the information they have to include, but the responsibility falls on the reporting company, who, of course, are going to look to us as the professional advisors saying, why didn't I know about that? Well, you know, Gary, because it's brand new. And that will that'll just wipe the slate clean. Everybody will forgive you because it's brand new, right? Is that what your malpractice character said? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, let's okay. Well, let's um, let's frame those out then. The reporting company. Wh- what is you? You mentioned um, companies that are formed by filing something with the Secretary of State or similar organization, like we do in in our beautiful state of Arizona with the Arizona Corporation Commission, which is not the Secretary of State. Many states, you form an entity by filing something with their secretary of state's corporate division or business division. So what what gets framed in that? You know, who is included, who's excluded from that? Starting point, um, all, almost everybody in that um, in Arizona and in most states, in order to form an entity, be it a corporation, a limited liability company, et cetera, you are filing a document of some sort, um, either with the corporation commission uh, or, or in some circumstances with the Secretary of State back in limited partnership plan. Um, and uh, no state, to my knowledge, has come up with the entity just yet where you form it without the filing of a document, although this may lead 
to that. You know, I, I would expect that Nevada or Wyoming or one of those cool states may be the first to figure that out. Um, but there are there are exceptions um, or exemptions as they're termed. There are um, 23 exemptions listed out in the Corporate Transparency Act itself. Um, and let me take one step back. So when, when this act was passed in January of 2021, the act itself actually instructed that we receive uh, regulations or rules um, within one year, which would have been the first of this year. And we did not get those, but in December of 2021, we did get proposed regulations. Proposed, of course, meaning, well, this is what we propose, but they're not final. So we know what the rules might be, but we don't know exactly what they will end up being. But in the act, there were 23 exemptions. Uh, almost all of them uh, I would um, funnel into a group of entities such as large operating entities uh, with at least 20 employees, with at least 5 million bucks in revenue in their last on their last entity tax return, um, large uh, accounting partnerships, basically entities that are already subject to reporting under other federal laws. So Sarbanes-Oxley or SEC rules, someplace where they're already being required to report information. Uh, the, the one e exemption that would be important to a lot of our clients is addressing uh, what they term a dormant entity. So, you know, once once LLCs came into play, uh, you know, if you if you have a business idea or a proposed transaction, it, it, it almost became um, muscle memory that you form an LLC to do it in. So and because LLCs, especially here in our home state of Arizona, you know, you, you file the articles, it's formed and you, you have no subsequent annual report requirements or anything like that, as you do with a corporation. There are plenty of LLCs that have been formed out there. Uh, that are either dormant in that they're not doing anything or what I would term a shelf entity that it got formed and nobody ever did anything with it. So there is an exemption for a dormant entity, but it's it's a rather narrow exemption in that that entity had to be in existence for at least a year. Uh, in the last 12 months, it can't have transferred more than $1,000 um, and it can't have any assets. So the the scope I've I've heard people say well you know pull your dormant entity entities and uh, file articles of termination now so that when this becomes effective and we'll talk about when that is uh, that you won't be subject to it problem being that unless you fall at least right now the way the proposed regs read unless you fall within those rather narrow parameters you're not a dormant entity so. If you had $2,500 in a bank account that you established when you originally set up this entity and never did anything with it, and you distribute that out currently to try to be dormant and terminate, well, you've had a transfer of more than a thousand bucks in the last 12 months, and you still might have a reporting requirement. Yeah, and it it actually sounds the way you're describing that, Gary, that the act, although it is called the Corporate Transparency Act, and that may be um, conjures up certain visions in people's brains is really targeted at small entities, not large entities. Well, and, and whether it's targeted there or not, it, it, it seems like the end result or the consequences 
in large part are going to fall upon those entities. Of course, mm-hmm. when when you're looking at the larger operating businesses, they may, may fall subject to one of the exemptions. Um, but literally every either mom and pop business doing business as an LLC or an S corporation or every LLC, including a disregarded entity, husband and wife LLC set up for liability purposes for their rental property or for holding pass-through investments, et cetera, is falling subject to this, including including uh, in states where you would otherwise be able to um, be silent, if you will, as to the identity of the members. Um, so, uh, you know, Delaware obviously comes to mind. Um, Colorado, interestingly, is a state commonly used uh, for folks out of California or elsewhere who are purchasing uh, luxury yachts or planes or luxury vehicles to hold ownership through a Colorado LLC because of the simple fact that when you form the LLC in Colorado, you're not required to identify the members. And that's that's where this is kind of a, a kick in the backside in that the very information that you're being required to report is the information that a lot of our clients have sought to avoid reporting. Yeah, reporting to somebody, somebody, a, a governmental agency. So, well, let's let's talk about that information there. You mentioned um, beneficiary ownership information or beneficial owner information. I may have I may have uh, goofed up the exact terminology, but so so one, once we're a reporting company, which based on our discussion so far, unless you're a large entity already out there subject to other reporting requirements, at least at this moment in time, you're a reporting entity. Congratulations, right? Um, And and by the way, you're a reporting company because we're worried about money laundering and funding terrorism. So mom and pop owning your uh, rental property at the University of Arizona, we know what you've really been doing. So yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, So once you're a reporting company, then what what is it that you're being required to report and in um, in simple terms basically that is to report all of the beneficial owners of that reporting company and all of the company applicants of that company so what is a beneficial owner at its core basically is who has control or substantial control of that reporting company uh, and the, the benchmarks basically from an ownership perspective are if you own 25% or more, you're a beneficial owner. But it doesn't stop there. Even if you don't own that percentage, if you if you can exercise substantial control, which we get into, okay, if I look at my operating agreement or other governing document and I can make certain key decisions um, about um, key transactions of the company or employees, et cetera, then I'm probably a beneficial owner. And that's where um, in the estate planning world where this becomes kind of hyper important is that a trust on its face is not a reporting company because to form a trust, you don't file a document with a state agency or an Indian tribe. Um, However, um, many, 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 almost all reporting companies out there, especially if they're part of um, an overall estate plan, are owned by trusts. So although trusts don't hop in on the first level of being a reporting company that has to submit this information, they are going to fall subject to being a beneficial owner who has to be reported about or reported upon, if you will, um, which gets into a multi-tier level of 
if I've got a trust that holds an ownership position in a reporting company, then what information needs to be reported about that trust? Is it the trustee? Does it go beyond that? If I have somebody that has a general power of appointment over that trust, do they fall within the, the realm of a beneficial owner? If I have an institutional trustee, well, then who is it? Is it is it my relationship manager? Is it my investment person? Is it on down the chain in that investment company? And those are answers which are unanswered at this point. In time. So the, the reason that this is of such import is, and we should back up to the beginning, this act became uh, or came into effect on January 1 of 2021. So it's been in existence for 18 or 19 or whatever months that is, but there are no reporting requirements yet in that the first the first report from a reporting company becomes due 12 months, one year after we get final regulation. And of course, we were supposed to have those by January 1 of this year. We don't have them, um, but you know, we will have them at some point in time. And depending on who you talk to, that when could be this year, could be next year or anywhere in between or beyond. But once that kicks in, that means there will be 12 months to report the information that we'll talk about. Um, and looking backward, like I said, they estimate there are 26 million entities out there that will need to be reported upon. Yep, it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a very, very, very big number. And by the well, way, and we'll, we'll, it, we'll, get, we'll get into what you need to report, but but the proposed regs also include an estimate an estimate of the cost of this reporting, which they estimate at $50 per report. Yeah. <laughs> so uh -huh. what, that, what that translates into, aside from all the other issues, is that likely this is going to spur either a whole new industry or an offshoot of existing industries, you know, like paychecks or all mm -hmm. the, the major um, reporting companies out there that do this kind of work for companies. I agree. Yeah, I think that is pretty pretty obvious that that's going to happen. People are not going to want to bother with doing this and it's not going to be economically viable to always pay, say, a team of lawyers to do this for you. But the, I mean, the exemptions are, you know, you, you mentioned they're, they are numerous, but they could, they could miss um, even entities that are quite large. Uh, so, you know, you think about a lot of family entities, that could have substantial investments inside of the entity, but they don't employ 20 people. Or, you know, even if they do employ 20 people, they may not have $5 million of revenue, but it doesn't mean it's an insubstantial entity. It could be an entity that owns, say, a lot of illiquid assets that are that own a lot, but they don't cash flow a lot. Exactly. And so even some of these very large family entities are gonna get gonna get swept into this. And at the top of those structures are almost always trusts. And now, like you're pointing out, you're going to have to potentially disclose the beneficiaries of the trust. And that's the complete opposite of the purpose of those trusts in my uh, experience. Usually the trust is there to provide privacy for those families. And basically what we're saying is the federal government does not want you to have that privacy in those circumstances because they don't have, and this is pretty typical for a lot of these programs, and it's not just our government, this is worldwide, where they have a very, very wide net because they want to catch a very, very small number of important fish, but they know that in this net, they're going to catch almost everybody. But so long as they can catch those very few important fish that they're really targeting, they don't mind that they're going to catch many other 
multiples more uh, of sort of innocent parties. And that's, I think, what's going to happen here. Well, and that and that wide net um, raises some practical questions in that, you know, well, where is the reporting to? Well, the repair, the mm-hmm. reporting to is to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Net Network, um, FinCEN, which is the entity where um, folks would be familiar with currently if they hold foreign bank accounts or, you know, assets that qualify as foreign assets where they're required annually to um, make a FinCEN filing. That's where this reporting is going to go to. So, you know, the first interesting question is when this comes into play and the first reports are due, if we're talking about 26 million entities, and even if we get, you know, some fair-sized, even if not a majority of compliance, um, you know, whether out of knowledge, ignorance, or otherwise, how are they even going to be um, ready to receive that kind of volume? And then, you know, what the government would tell you is that, well, you're only only reporting to FinCEN, and it's only going to be available, the information that you disclose is only going to be available to you know, certain governmental agencies for certain appropriate purposes. The problem is, is that you're going to be making these filings, you know, either on paper or more likely at this point in time, electronically. Back back when they first started the, the FBAR reporting to FinCEN, at first you couldn't do it electronically. It was paper only. And then it came a point in time to where it's no paper. It has to be electronic. So either way, you're either going to be mailing in paper with information that you didn't set out to disclose when you set these things up, or you're going to be transmitting over the airwaves to a government server servers someplace. So there's not going to be an enormous feeling of of, of comfort of you. certainly of our clients when when they're asking us, well, why why would I have to disclose this when I spent all this money on you to form this entity to do exactly the opposite? Yeah, and and you know, there's going to be a whole slew of scammers out there. It's like when you, um, I mean, this happens constantly to clients of mine where we we record something in the county records, and then they receive a letter in the mail from some company telling them that if you just pay us ninety dollars, then we will check your property tax statement and tell you how much you owe, even though that's totally public information and you could just get it by almost by googling it it's that available and it's just they're just scammers and i can i can imagine some of this uh, being the, in the purview of scammers because the information that they have to disclose i can't remember if you mentioned this or not but it's uh the full legal name of the beneficial owners their date of birth their residential or business street address which you know you may not be wanting to share that information so for all the people out there who were clever and they want to use PO boxes so they don't have to disclose that that's not going to work. Um, and then your unique identifying number that is an acceptable identify or from an acceptable identifying document or, or some number you're going to have with FinCEN. So whatever that's going to be, I don't know if that's going to be a driver's license number, a passport number, a social security number, or all of the above, or some other new number they're going to come up with. But there's going to be some very specific number so, so they indicate you can submit a driver's license number, or you can apply and get, you know, an approved identifying number with FinCEN, which mm-hmm. the which begs the question, okay, if I want to get an identifying number with you, FinCEN, what information is it that I have to submit to you to get that identifying number? Right. So, you know, and when you said residential address or business address, it's interesting that um, certain of the uh, individuals that you're going to have to report on 
it's not residential or business, it's a residential address. And where this comes into play is, um, you know, not only from a privacy standpoint, but from a practical standpoint. So we've talked about reporting companies, we've talked about beneficial owners. The third category is a company applicant. And um, to, to, you know, narrow that to simple terms, basically that means if you or I form an entity out of our law office, or if um, a CPA firm that happens to form entities for their clients forms the entity, then certainly that includes uh, the, the, the principle that they're dealing with, so the CPA or the lawyer, but it would, extend, it would seem to extend down the chain to the legal assistant or secretary that helped in that application, potentially all the way down to the runner that took that document down to the corporation commission or up to the secretary of state, which um, you know means we're having to identify and disclose a residential address for each of those people which beyond the privacy issue, if we look backward, if we're talking about an entity that you formed 20 years ago out of your office and the, the particular legal assistant or staff member that worked on that file, assuming you can even identify who that was, has long since not worked for you and you have no clue where they may be. But on its face, this, that's what this reporting requirement calls out for. So what happens if so let's say they they finalize the regulations. One year goes by and Gary Fletcher decides, you know what? I hate the federal government so badly that I refuse to comply. I am a conscientious objector. And now all of the entities that you have been forming for the for your entire legal career, not thinking you're ever going to have to do something like this, have not reported or you haven't reported yourself, I guess. Um, what happens? What, what is the penalty? So the, the penalties, not surprisingly, are initially monetary, like any other filing with Treasury or, or FinCEN. And anyone familiar with FinCEN knows that uh, their penalties are not to be ignored. They're, they tend to be rather significant. So in this case, the penalty for each report, at least so far for each report, is $500 per day, up to $10,000 and uh, up to two years imprisonment. So the issue that you raise with regard to the lawyers or whatever professional um, entity that assisted in the formation of the entity is kind of a sticky one in that, you know, it's all well and good to say that the reporting requirement falls on the reporting company. So number one, the reporting company is going to be looking to us as attorneys or whatever other professional advisors to say, hey, this exists. Um, and then to assist in gathering that information. And if we were the if we were the the uh, entity that helped form it, and we simply don't have that information, well, where that liability falls is something that's to come. Uh, but for the professionals out there, the 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 key takeaway is well, you can only do so much about what you've been doing for the last ten or twenty or thirty years. But on a go forward basis. Uh, in, in some of the standard um, documentation that we deal with our clients with. So beginning with the engagement agreement or engagement letter, if the engagement is to form an entity that's going to fall subject to this reporting, then we need to be addressing within the confines of that engagement letter or engagement agreement that, hey, we're forming this for you. This entity probably is a reporting company under this new law. That liability falls upon you and then describe to what degree you you are 
either agreeing to assist or taking on liability in that regard, or to the contrary, negating such liability. And where that becomes kind of sticky or important is that the, the reporting starts for existing entities one year from the date that they issue effective final regulations, but there are also timing requirements for either a brand new entity that's formed after those final regulations in which they've given us a whopping 14 days <laughs> to submit a report. And then thereafter, if there is a change in any of the reported information, so the, you know, primarily the beneficial owners have changed, then you've got a 30 day period to update that reporting. So from the professional standpoint, you know, the question becomes, okay, in my engagement document, I, I form your entity. I hopefully make you aware of this. I say what my responsibility is or isn't for assisting you in filing your initial report. Um, but then what do I say as far as, okay, and then I don't hear from you for four years and your beneficial ownership structure has changed and you don't report. That's where, it, in my view, it becomes important that we're spelling out that, you know, our our obligation to assist you or participate in that reporting ceases once our initial engagement in the formation of the entity has come to an end. I think that'd be the wise thing. And it, it's just so difficult to, to monitor those sorts of things. You can even imagine um, when somebody dies, 30 days is not a long period of time when somebody has passed away. And it's it's really unlikely that every entity with an owner that dies is going to get their act together in 30 days. They may not even know who is going to become the new beneficial owner of that entity within 30 days. It just may not be clear. And it's it's going to be a real challenge. Death is specifically carved out as not a beneficial ownership change, the, the death itself. But of course, once the new owner is identified and in existence, then at, at a bare minimum, you've got 30 days from the date that that occurs mm. to do that reporting. And of course, yeah, that's, I hope that's, that's true. And that's the first thing on everybody's mind when somebody has died, especially in a closely held <laughs> right. entity, right? Yeah, that's right. File government forms. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, for I mean, 14 days even from the the formation of a company is nothing. Uh, you know, just like me, um, clients come to us all the time and say, oh, yeah, I, I formed it was no big deal. I formed this LLC. I just have it. I've never used it. So let's use it now for X, Y, Z reason. You have no idea that that happened. And I'm certain when they are forming those entities, they're not thinking. And then what government documents do I need to be filing? I, where I'm not as clear and I and I hope it is this way is whether the state, say the secretary of state offices or the Arizona Corporation Commission are themselves going to be uh, very obviously warning people when they are filing something that they're going to they have this obligation and that they need to do it. Or are the state's various offices just going to be take a complete uh, hands off approach to it? I, I, I just wonder about that, because, again, if somebody doesn't come and at if they don't know that this exists, it's going to be very difficult for them to find out on their own and get educated on their own unless somebody is prompting them to look at it. Because it's not like if you're forming an LLC, like your example of holding that rental unit near the university, that doesn't just scream off the top off the top in an obvious way, Corporate Transparency Act issue. No, absolutely not. And, um, so, you know, so, so two things. Interestingly, 
um, in the ACTEC group that you and I are both in, somebody raised the point of, well, somebody should be doing a public service announcement because nobody knows about this, <laughs> you know, which, which, is, which is true. Um, but uh, like you say, clients will come to us and say, yeah, you know, um, thanks to um, online filing with the Corporation Commission or Secretary of State, thanks to one of the online, you know, legal do-it-yourself services. I formed an LLC uh, 24 months ago, but I've never done anything with it. All I did was put, you know, an initial funding of 1500 bucks in it. Well, you know, right now you're not a dormant. Ent- Sorry. Right, right. And and I, I've not seen anything in our state, in Arizona, to indicate that the uh, Corporation Commission or any other state agency is going to take um, an aggressive or affirmative approach to um, bringing attention to this. The only area that I've seen it thus far um, is from title companies. Mm-hmm. And I'm, start, I'm starting to see questionnaires on transactions that are closing that are, you know, new to the volume of questionnaires that normally come from the title companies. And the client has no idea why they're being asked. But when I'm looking at when I'm looking at the information that they're being asked to report to close a transaction, it clearly is tied in some manner either to this or there's actually a, a similar kind of a sister um, uh, regulatory scheme that title companies are subject to that report the same kind type of information. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And whether it's a transaction that's being closed by a title company or it's being closed by a different professional, that information is going to need to be on the closing list. Uh, just like, say, if you're you probably hear my dog in the background here, um, just like just like if you're going to do, for example, a sale of a membership interest in a company that's taxed as a partnership. Really, right now, you're supposed to be gathering forms W-9s, W-8s, because if you don't do it, you have a withholding requirement under the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So stuff like that is just going to have to be added to the list. And unfortunately, we're going to have to deal with it. We're just going to have to know that it's there and the clients won't know that it's there. They won't know why they're being asked. But nonetheless, the duty will the duty will be there and we'll be duty bound to to follow it. Of course, all those lists come about based on the unknown of, of okay, where is the ultimate liability and responsibility going to rest for this? Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, it starts with the reporting company. But when their answer is, well, I didn't know, they're going to want to point to somebody in the equation that I should have been made aware. Exactly. And, uh, and also, you know, we, we um, one thing I don't want to miss is um, when we talked about reporting companies and exemptions, this applies to both um, domestic reporting companies. So entities that you have formed in the United States, um, but also foreign entities that have become registered to do business in a United States jurisdiction. So if I have a foreign entity that, pursuant to the laws of whatever particular state, have filed a document with the Corporation Commission or the Secretary of State or whatever applicable state agency to be duly registered to do business, they also fall subject. Yeah, and foreign beneficial owners, too. Yep. So... uh you know, a foreign person who's investing through an entity in the U.S. to purchase property here, which is a completely normal transaction. It's not illegal. Uh, there, we welcome investment from abroad, but now they are going to have to disclose their identifying information to the U.S. government. And I'm I'm curious to see if that's off-putting 
now theoretically the information that they're being that they're disclosing to the US government is not being shared with foreign uh governments but I don't know (laughs) I don't know you know theoretically not on purpose but yeah you know primarily my concern is that if we're dealing with an electronic filing in this volume in the day and age with quantum computing coming along you know who knows how many um detours that information is taking along the way yeah exactly you know and and with those foreign investors you know you may have the most compliant foreign investor who you know is is reporting for income tax purposes in multiple countries and following whatever applicable treaty there may be to determine okay what do i need to report where and think they're totally compliant with everything only to be told whoops i i can't remember um i'm curious if you know whether this was scored as a revenue raiser or not do you know do not know i'd be curious because i can only imagine that they somewhere are thinking that this is going to raise money because all of these penalties are going to be well, substantial you know, if you take that logic down the line if, if you look backward where um the fbar and fact of reporting has gone with you know substantial penalties for non-compliance and and what has that led to you know however many um programs be it amnesty programs or streamline programs to try to cause voluntary compliance you know are we about to travel that road again i i would only assume so you know if you're well you know you think of like a, a foreign investor or or you know maybe somebody who's 18 years old so they're not they're not a child anymore they're barely an adult and something like this happens to them and they forget to report are you really going to find that person ten thousand dollars if they had no idea or even if they were misinformed and they followed bad advice you know are they really going to have to pay a ten thousand dollar penalty i would hope not hopefully reasonable minds will prevail on that but so you're right gonna, I, there's not a there's not a program right now it doesn't exist in the bill are we going to jump back into the the semantics of what is willful or what is not willful <laughs> i could imagine so yeah i could imagine so we'll see it's going to be interesting um i can't remember if i mentioned at the beginning of the end, uh, beginning of this episode or whether that was just you and i chatting before this started but i i'm, I'm pretty sure i had read that in the the most recent defense authorization act there is an additional layer of of anti-money laundering information gathering um that's coming down that would apply to people like lawyers and accountants to gather information about their their clients and do more bank style know your customer uh background checks so i this is a trend obviously this is not the beginning of the trend um and i just don't see it ending i think this this is just the way of the world now there is no there's no real secrecy and anybody who thinks they're going to find it is just going to be dis- disappointed eventually that's just in that um well num- number one those will be provisions in yet another act with proposed and final regulations to follow so the limbo will continue but um you know if that turns out to be the case then we've got the corporate transparency act covering the reporting company with reporting requirements. And just mm-hmm. in case, you know, ignorance or lack of willfulness allows you to escape, well, then we'll, we will, the government will flip it to the professional advisors to say, okay, well, you had the same responsibility. Yeah. Yep. I mean, you can see what they're doing. 
you know, they're really trained to tighten the noose around bad actors and the facilitators of the bad actors. So it's it's a logical way to do it. It just happens to be that it sweeps up tons of innocent people that have nothing to do with the real target of these regulations. But nonetheless, you have to comply. And it gets to the reality of, well, why did this even come about? It, you know, it's not out of the blue. It, it came about because in, in the realm of evaluating um, compliance with global standards on addressing money laundering and funding of terrorism, uh, the United States uh, would um, habitually score poorly or, uh, um, you know, or, or un, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Unacceptable. Yeah. Uh, in those standards, which is le- which, which is what led to the multiple attempts to pass something. So this is not this is not our government just you know out of the blue looking for a revenue generator, et cetera. It was global pressure on the United States. You are not scoring well, and some of us are. Yeah, like pretty much the rest of the world. And yeah, every, this is you're right. This is just us catching up with. The rest of the globe and the way that they're doing things and it is vastly popular in a very bipartisan way so when people tell you how we've never been so divided politically you can hold this up as an example of how we're so, we're very united on certain issues this is one of them this is one where get out the vote is not going to help you so no it is not <laughs> uh, that's so true okay well gary this has been very informative hopefully not too shocking for that many of our listeners but I thank you very much for your time and helping us to unpack this. You bet. I'm glad that, uh, you know, the last time I was on with you, our topics were very Arizona specific. So I'm glad to be on discussing someone, something that probably affects anybody who's listening. Yeah, I'm glad you know something outside of the confines of the state of Arizona. It's good to know that now. Shocking, isn't it? <laughs> it is a bit. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Gary. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.